Welcome, everybody. Mike Claiborne here on ClaibsOnline.com, and we have a special guest, and we're going to talk about something I know a lot of people have certainly been talking about during the course of the week, and that is The Last Dance, which was aired on ESPN. It's a uh, story or docuseries regarding the final year of the Chicago Bulls with Michael Jordan, and it was a very interesting year for sure that ended with a championship. And with us today is a person who was part of that run, not in uniform, I might add, but he was the assistant general manager for the Chicago Bulls. He was also one of the top scouts in the organization, and he saw a lot during that period of time. His name is Clarence Gaines Jr. Now, if that name sounds familiar, his dad, Big House Gaines, a Naismith Hall of Famer, and Clarence has been in the game of basketball for a number of years. So, Clarence, first of all, thank you for joining us. Let's talk a little bit about The Last Dance. You had a chance to see the first installment of the first two installments. Give me your impressions of what you saw compared to what you know. Oh, I know a lot. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I, I think there are a lot of people pontificating out here who think they know something, but don't really, really know the ins and outs. And you got to expect that. And what The Last Dance did for me, uh, you know, it's been a, a long time since the, the championship rain in that championship year and it's just uh, a nice refresher uh, about uh, what went down and what went on and i look forward to the uh, remaining uh, eight uh, segments of the show because it just jogs your memory about so many things um, that that said um, you know a lot of takeaways from uh, looking at this documentary you know None of it's surprised to me. Uh, none of it's probably surprised to people who deeply follow the Chicago Bulls and the NBA during that period. But for a whole generation of fans, they've been exposed to this great team and the dynamics around the team. To travel and be associated with the Bulls during this time period was just an incredible life experience. And when you're around that kind of greatness, Day in and day out, most people don't get to see that. And uh, to see uh, that team, to see Michael Jordan, uh, this force of personality and his driving force, his will in the team, and, and see the excellence that was uh, throughout that organization from uh, the ownership uh, to the coaching staff to the front office to our strength and conditioning people on down um, was just magnificent. So it was, it was a great time. Give me around uh, that, that that organization in in the league at that time period. Uh, for you, the the two focal points in in the first two episodes, obviously Michael and, and Jerry Krause, a person you work for. <laughs> uh, give me your thumbnail and, and give me your relationship with both of them, and and how Jerry Krause was depicted was was a little bit of an eyebrow raiser for people who didn't know Jerry Krause. But give me your thoughts on both Michael and Jerry. Well, my uh, first uh, experience with Michael Jordan goes back to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I was in graduate school at the time. I started grad school. Uh, I went to have a master's degree in business from the UNC's Keenan Flagler Business School. And um, the first remembrance of Michael was when Jimmy Black, who was a guard, said, uh, we're hosting this cocky young freshman. Uh, not anyone, you know, freshman, excuse me, as cocky young seniors, you know, we're recruiting. That cocky young senior was was Michael Jordan. I knew most of the basketball players was actually in the facility called Granville Towers. And uh, I ended up meeting Michael his freshman year in college. Most people 
obviously knew who my dad was at the time. For your viewers, they don't know who my dad is. My dad uh, was a uh, college basketball coach in North Carolina. Was the first uh, black coach inducted into the Naismith Memorial Hall of Fame as a coach. It should have been John McClendon. Uh, that's a long story. So you know he had a hell of a reputation in the in the basketball community, and uh, so that was my first inkling with Michael. I never forget seeing Michael the first time playing uh, his his uh, freshman year at Carolina against uh, Nola Richardson's University of Tulsa team. And, uh, which was a pretty good team. And first time I laid eyes on Michael, you knew it was something different. He was pretty special as a freshman. And obviously I came to the Bulls in the 1989-90 season full-time. I worked for him part-time in 88 and 89. Uh, and uh, I got to know Michael. And, uh, and uh, so my relationship with him was professional. I wouldn't say we were deep friends, but you know, if you look on the uh, Last Dance uh, second episode, you'll see me in a drive-by where uh, they played the Clippers, and I was actually at the game that day. And uh, you know, Michael acknowledges me, and I say something back to him. Uh, obviously, with Jerry Krause, uh, I've known Jerry since uh, he first took over the Bulls as general manager. And it's a pretty interesting story. Uh, Jerry took over in uh, 1985, I believe. And uh, that would be probably in the spring of that year. The Bulls, Jerry Weinsdorf led a, uh, a management group to take over that franchise and install. Jerry is the general manager, and that's a story in and of itself. It wasn't Jerry's third time around with the Chicago Bulls. The first time he was around as a scout uh, in the uh, 60s, I believe. And uh, then he was uh, later basically in, uh, hired from 1976 as a player personnel director. And a lot of people don't know this. And then he was fired within about three to four months of that job. And I'm not going to go into details of it. You can read it. Uh, but then when Jerry Reinsdorf took over the team, he, he hired Krauss, who was working in his baseball organization at the time. But Jerry had a dual uh, background in both baseball and basketball. And I actually posted something uh, just recently from the Chicago Reader on my Twitter site, uh, linking an article from the Chicago Reader. That's a pretty good primer on Jerry for those who don't really understand his background and uh, the wealth experience he had before he got this uh, opportunity but anyway when he got the job he uh, called my dad and said big house i'm getting back into the pro games anyone in your conference which is the central intercollegiate athletic association which is a uh, a group of historically black colleges and universities who had produced uh, because of uh, segregation that produced a lot of outstanding talent that eventually went on to the league one being my dad player, Earl Monroe, uh, who, by the way, Jerry was a scout with the Bullets uh, and was really uh, high on Earl and instrumental in having to pick it. That's the relationship with my dad goes back to Earl Monroe uh, and, and, and those days. But my dad said, yeah, Jerry, got a kid in our conference that you should be taking a look at. His name's Charles Oakley. And then... Um, 
Jerry ended up picking Oakley that year. Um, Oakley was uh, uh, did the postseason All Star. Matter of fact, my father that year coached in uh, a Hawaiian All Star team that that was uh, run by the NBA at that time, and uh, Oak was on his team. So that was my first inkling with Jerry, and then eventually we ended up developing our uh, own relationship, and uh, he he offered me a uh, opportunity to come with the Bulls in uh, 88-89 season as a uh, part-time scout and then hired me after uh, after that year. So, and obviously I worked with him day in and day out for for 11 years. So, uh, I know his quirks. I know what he's, he's about and I know his contributions in, uh, to the game. Uh, in terms of how he was depicted in the uh, the movie, um, the documentary, uh, you know, I, I actually listened to the uh, director, and he said Jerry's not really a villain in this movie; he's a foil. And, you know, he's using semantics there, but I actually had to go out and look up what a foil is, <laughs> and that's someone that serves as a contrast to another. And uh, not too much different from a villain with uh, a uh, character who uh, opposes the hero. The hero obviously being MJ and Jerry being used as a foil here. Um, but I think the main thing to get across to people is that, and hopefully I've kind of set a little bit stage for it, is that Carlson was just not a novice who was hired by Reinsdorf from the... Uh, baseball side. He had a deep background in the game of basketball. And what people really need to understand about Jerry is that he had a vision for the day that uh, he got the job and he executed that vision. And what was the vision? The vision was twofold. The first person that Jerry contacted was Tex Winter uh, because he wanted and Reinsdorf wanted. If you listen to that documentary, uh, Reinsdorf has a background. Uh, the New Yorker was really mesmerized, like a lot of New Yorkers were, by the great teams in the late 60s and early 70s and the way they played basketball and the system of basketball that they played, how unselfish they were. And uh, that was what he wanted to bring as an owner to the Chicago Bulls. And Jerry Krause had always believed in that type of basketball himself and felt that Tex Winter and his, what became known as the triangle offense, what Tex actually called the triple post offense, um, would be the staple. So his first call after he got the job was to Fred Tex Winter, who was out here in Long Beach. Uh, same for that one. Matter of fact, there's another story. Um, my dad was friends with Tex, and they were on the uh, board of the National Association of Basketball Coaches. And I actually moved to California in uh, 1984. Excuse me, 1982. Man, time goes fast, doesn't it? 1982, after I graduated from uh, grad school, and I bought a condo in Long Beach. And before I bought that condo, guess who my dad called? He said, Tex. I want you to go over and check out this condo my son is buying and give me a, a little report on it. And Tex actually ended up doing that. Uh, but not to digress, 
checks uh, uh, was in Jerry's mind. He wasn't going to have him be a the head coach, but he wanted to be a coach of coaches. And um, it took a time for that to eventually come around. But that was a key and essential move for the Bulls organization at the time. And the second person that he called, and not a lot of NBA teams were doing this, was Alfred Neal, uh, who was the brother of Victor Neal. Strength and conditioning Al- coach. Correct. He had he had to be a, the head. He became the head strength and conditioning coach uh, for the Chicago Bulls at the time. And the NBA, you know, people can't really understand the NBA then as it is now if you don't have that background. You know, and, and I'll get into a little bit of that in, in terms of uh, talking about Scottie Pippen's uh, salary. Um, but still, those are revolutionary moves back then. A lot of NBA teams were, I don't want to say they were mom and pop organizations, but in reality, uh, they were. You know, they know what the big conglomerates they were now. I mean, if you look at what Jerry Krause, not Jerry Krause, but Jerry Reinsdorf and his group uh, bought the Bulls for in like 1985, I think they took the 60% share and maybe even about 8 or $9 million. You think about what an NBA team now is worth. You're talking about the billions of dollars. So those are some of the key things that Krauss did at the initial stages that I don't know that people are really aware of. Obviously, they're not. And uh, hopefully, and the um, the uh, guy who's putting this together, um, the director and the producer, said that there'll be a little bit more of a balanced representation of, of, of Krause's contributions as the uh, documentary uh, uh, plays out. But, you know, Jerry was viewed always in Chicago as a, a polarizing figure. You know, it's a pretty amazing. If you look um, at that documentary, the second championship, we're getting our rings and he gets booed. That's pretty amazing. So this is nothing that's, new in terms of information that's uh, being revealed to the public. It's, it's always been there. And he was always cast as a, a little bit of a uh, antagonist and villain in the press of eyes. And, and you know, Michael was so well loved that uh, it was easy for the fans to take one side versus the other. But here's the other point I want to make, uh, you know, before we, I kind of been a little bit long-winded here, uh, but you can break it down and ask other questions. It ain't just about Jerry Krause. It's, when you think of Bulls management, you've got to obviously mention the managing partner of the Chicago Bulls and Jerry Reinsdorf and how he never gets lumped with Krause is amazing to me. Uh, and Jerry, brilliant man, um, basically let Krauss run the operation as he saw fit. Well, let him make the major decisions, obviously, because that's what he hired him for in terms of uh, draft picks and free agent acquisitions, uh, things of that nature. But if there's a major decision that's going to be made, Krauss is always, always communicating in Ryan's door. 
And I talk about a major decision. I'm talking about, uh, at that time, let's say Scotty Pippen's salary, um, situation, which was mentioned, uh, in the documentary. Reinsdorf obviously is going to be involved with that. And one thing, Reinsdorf's a straight shooter. If you listen to the documentary and what did he tell, um, Scotty, he said, Scotty, if you sign this, it's not going to be a renegotiation. If I was you, I wouldn't do it because down the road, things are changing in this order, in the, uh, not in the organization, but changing in terms of the league, in terms of how the league is evolving and advancing. And, and, and we've seen that, you know, uh, at the time that, uh, you know, actually the first day, I think people need to understand it. Dime Pitt did his first deal. Cal's salary cap, the entire salary cap in the NBA was basically $7 million. And then when he redid the deal, it was $12.5 million. And that was, it would have been in 91, 92. And what a lot of people don't know, why did Scotty want to do that deal? He signed a six year deal when he first came into the NBA. Guess what happened after his first year in the NBA? Do you know, Michael? His first year in the NBA, Pip had to have back surgery. Oh, that's right. That's right. You're right. You're right. My bad. So, so let's look at his psyche. He sees himself evolving. He signed a six-year contract. He remembered he had back surgery. He wants to be paid what other people are being paid in the NBA and about the four years after his initial rookie contract. And he says, it's time for me to renegotiate this deal. Now, the collective bargain agreement has changed over the years. He had two more years to go on his deal. And his deal actually got signed right before the NBA uh, title game, the last one that we were involved with that year. Ended and it had to be done that way because I went back and did a little homework. I, that's why I'm saying this thing is jogging my memory about a lot of things, and then I just go and you know Google and research things. We had drafted Tony Kukoc, and Jerry had held back money to try to find Tony Kukoc. So basically, that year um, the Bulls were under the cap by 1.6 million dollars. They either used lose or use that money. And so they got the deal done. Scotty got his money front loaded in the contract. So by the time you get to when this documentary happens and was it 97, 98, we're looking at, he's getting paid people 2.77, $2.8 million. Well, in the first two years of his deal, his contract was 2.8 million. Second year is 3.4. Third year is 3.1. And those first two years, we renegotiated. So he got the money. He had like the 15th or 16th highest contract at the time in terms of payment. So he was a happy camper. But that doesn't get reflected in this, does it? All the little nuances that I'm giving you in reference to what was his motivation for doing it. Jerry Reinsdorf, this did come up in the documentary saying, don't sign this because things don't change. 
Where's Scotty's agents in this? Scotty was probably driving this. I've read things that said his agent even told him not to do this. Agents who you would know because you've probably dealt with. You know, Jimmy Scotty's Sexton. Agent, yeah, right? Jimmy Sexton and Kyle Rowe Jr., yeah. Exactly. Right in your right in your back backyard, one of them, right? Yep. All right. So from that standpoint, you know, what can you say? So those are my things that, that I thought I wanted to highlight, uh, bring up, give a little bit more in-depth uh, uh, understanding to people about the reality of the time. You know, now we see guys making average salary 10, $12 million and, and you see where Scotty making, but they got to look at those in 19, $90, look at the time, and also look at what Michael Jordan was paid. Yeah, you know, he made, he, he made his million dollar deal. Yeah, but he made his money off the court, which, you know, nobody ever talks about. You know, he wasn't making a lot of money either, but off the court was, uh, you know, three, four times more than whatever he was going to ever get playing at that time due to the salary cap. So, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Let me, let me ask you about, uh, Jerry Krause a little bit more. Um, you, sure. You've been around him a great deal. Give me a Jerry moment because I, I think when you first hear about him, read about him, whatever, you say to yourself, boy, he's not a good people person. Uh, he didn't come across well. I know he was a pinata not only for Michael but certainly the media in Chicago on a number of different occasions. Give me one of your Jerry moments. To say Jerry's not a, <clears throat> a good people person uh, is a misnomer. Jerry can be whatever he wants to be. I, I know you met with him and dealt with him, so you might been want nothing to share. But, no, he's been nothing but gracious to me. I, I never had a problem with him in, in a multiple uh, opportunities of being around him in different situations. He was more than gracious with his time and honesty, so I never had that problem, but I knew other people who did have a problem when I think that maybe Jerry thought they were trying to steal a base or maybe they were a little too caustic toward him and he would be able to give it back to him. You know, Jerry, like anybody, is a we're all complex human beings, right? And he is a guy who could endear himself to you. He's also a guy who could piss you off. I think one thing that really hit me uh, was when Ryan Ryan Store sent something about Jerry Krause in the, uh, the documentary, and I, and I think it describes Jerry to a T in terms that he loved people who didn't necessarily love him back. And we all want to, we all want to be loved, right? We all want to be appreciated. And, uh, over time, Jerry could, um, uh, rub people in many different ways, the more they got, the more they got to know. Him. So, but I thought what Ryan Zorf had to say, he would love people who didn't love him back. It's pretty on point in the app description. Really, the essence of Jerry in a lot of ways. Let me ask you this. Um, you know, that, that was a fascinating team, uh, a better defensive team than I think anybody ever gave him credit for. Uh, what when you look back on that particular team, what was one of the more underrated elements about how and why they were so successful. Oh, I don't know where you come from in that statement, uh, Michael, in terms of us not being looked at as a, a defensive team. I mean, Johnny Bach. 
Yeah, I'm, that's what I'm saying. I mean, when you look on the surface, everybody thinks of Michael and the High Wire Act, and here comes Scotty. But when you look at and, and we didn't even get into John Bach, who was an incredible coach in his own right. Uh, yeah. I always felt that the reason why the Bulls were good because they wanted to guard people. And I thought when you had Dennis Rodman, he was kind of final piece because he could guard point guards, he could guard centers, he could. He, if anybody was hot, you could put Rodman on them, and then all of a sudden their night was going to change. But I never thought that that team got the credit for them being able to play hard-nosed defense and really shut teams down. Okay, you're talking about the, the second three-peat specifically yes. in the 97-98 yes. uh-huh. Because i got to give a little credit to someone before I get to that team. You know, First of all, we talked. I just mentioned Johnny Bach. And when we Johnny talked about his Bulls and Johnny at that time in 97, 98 wasn't with the Bulls. He's more with the Bulls, obviously, in the first three feet. And Johnny talked about his Dobermans and the Doberman defense. And basically, at any time, we could apply pressure 94 feet. And a guy who was a really key cog, along with you know Michael and Scotty in the first championship run from a defensive standpoint, uh, was Horace Grant. And to, to this day, to me, Horace is one of the most underrated uh, defensive power forwards in this league. He put uh, Horace at the point of the attack on the full court press. And then obviously when you do that, you have to be the man who is responsible to go what, trap where the ball first goes and then be able to recover. So you're talking about a guy 6'10", half, 235, 240 pounds. And the one guy who really benefited from the strength and conditioning program and the Bulls when I was there and there were many others. The one guy who really took to what Al was taking, was, was talking about, was Horace Grant. And just to see his de- development over time uh, was very special. But since we're talking about the second three-peat in this specific team, yeah, uh, it, th- there was really no difference in the philosophy of the team. They, they were long, lean athletes. Um, you had them in... Uh, Every position with uh, MJ, obviously, Pitt and Hart. You got three guys who are over 6'5, six, 6'6 six, six in your backcourt. Um, and then you got Dennis Rodman who can fill all different holes. And then you had our center position, which was held by a triumvirate of the guys who, who probably were the weak point from a defensive standpoint, but who were skilled offensively. You know? uh, so, no, it was, it was a very well put together team. We have a chance today to visit with Richard Mark, the chairman and president of Ameren, Illinois. And Richard, considering how many people that are working from home and you have families at home as well, a lot of electricity is being used and a lot of power is being used and there are still ways to save. The best way to save energy is don't use it. And so not only reminding our children and ourselves to turn lights off, but in this day and age to turn our electronic appliances off, our electronic devices off. When you charge your cell phone and then you unplug it from your phone, if it's still plugged in to a wall socket, uh, if it does not have some type of smart switch that you have it plugged into, that energy is still being used. So people don't realize all of the ways that they're still using energy. Let me ask you about the uh, relationship between Phil and Jerry. Uh, why did it come down to... Jerry saying to Phil Jackson, you can go 82-0 and and you still won't be back to coach this team. When did that happen? When did that rift take place? 
And, and why was it so uh, so rough at the end? Because, it, it, again, Phil Jackson knew he was done. How did they get to that point? Uh, Michael, why, why do uh, people get married and then in our country, what, 40 to 50 percent of them get divorced? Um, I'll never forget. Uh, you know who Common Policy is? You know who yeah, George C. Com- yeah, right? with the San Francisco 49ers. He put those great organizations together. Yeah, and then went exactly on to Cleveland. Those two. Yeah. Well, George Seaford eventually left, right? Yeah. And, and I'll never get reading this all article and telling why they left. And, and it kind of applies to uh, Jerry and uh, Phil. You just wear each other out. You dinner day in and day out. You just wear each other out. And over time, the day-to-day interactions, uh, this happens not only in organizations like the Chicago Bulls, it happens all over the NBA. You know, when you see the longevity of a franchise uh, like the San Antonio Spurs, with Greg Popovich being in charge for that long. That's the exception to the rule. But of course, Greg's always been the president of the organization as well as the coach. And obviously had a tremendous lieutenant uh, working with him on a day-to-day basis. But that's the exception to the rule. And uh, I would say that there were fissures. He still got the head coaching job. First year was 89, 90, so we get to 97, 98. Uh, I'd probably say starting around the second go-around when Michael came in and maybe a little bit before that, mainly second go-around. Was it more of a, a philosophical difference, or did Jerry think he could coach and Phil thought he was a general manager? I mean, you see that spill over from time to time. Uh, or was it just they weren't, uh, from a personality standpoint, on the same page anymore? Now, the great thing about the Chicago Bulls organization, and, and Jerry always alluded to it, whenever he talked about Jerry Reinsdorf, he thought he was, you know, the greatest owner in professional sports. And you know, a lot of people who are general managers are going to say that about their owner. But uh, Reinsdorf was very chain of commandish. Uh, I just heard Tim Floyd uh give an interview about this time period, which I learned a few things. I uh, knew most of them, but you know, I learned a few things that Tim enlightened the audience about. Uh, but Tim talked about protocols being followed in the organization. So there, there was a distinct separation. You know, Jerry didn't want to coach. Jerry knew he couldn't coach, so, but he understood coaching. Uh, and Phil uh, didn't want to be a GM. He ended up being one. I ended up obviously having the pleasure of working with Phil um, with, with the New York Knicks. And those are years that I will treasure. I'm the best years I've ever had in terms of responsibility. I was getting somebody to really listen to what I had to say. And I, and I really appreciated that. Uh, so those lines of authority were always in place, were always followed. But it's just the day-to-day interactions of dealing with things. And, um, you know, Jerry would always consult Phil, especially when you're talking about free agent situations and 
and the knowledge that a coach may have and other coaches may have of, uh, of NBA personnel, if you're going to make a trade and what do you think about this player on the team? You know, he, he welcomed that kind of input from Phil. Uh, yeah. Um, Jerry's going to be pretty much always try to get input from different sources, whether they be in the organization, without the organization, outside the organization, make the best possible decision that he can on personnel matters. Um, but where the Fishers actually uh, started and took place could be over a variety of things. But I just count it off to day-to-day interaction and wearing each other out, man, over time. So. All right. Well, let me run this by you. As we visit with Clarence Gaines, uh, former executive with the Chicago Bulls, um, we've only seen two chapters. While we haven't seen the entire series, is there one element that you hope they focus on to, to tell a story or tell a portion of what this team was all about in that final year that maybe people either A, were not aware of, or B, would not under, would not have understood at the time? Uh, I look for like everybody else, Michael. I know you want to do this with me on a, a weekly basis, uh, just seeing how things evolve because you know, my memory is being jogged uh, along with other people's memory of this time frame and time period. Uh, like, for example, they focused on going to Paris, you know, for the McDonald's tournament. And I was uh, able to go to that and also bring my wife. It was an incredible uh, tournament in terms of an experience. When you're able to get on this private plane, you fly with everybody, your wife's able to accompany you and just experience Paris from that standpoint. Um, but, you know, if you had asked me two weeks ago, I would have forgotten that Dennis Rodman wasn't on that trip and that he was <laughs> in a contract dispute. Uh, I would have remembered that had the injury issue <laughs> and you know the delaying uh his surgery so it was convenient for him um but you know what i think is going to be really a blessing for people to see is how this team comes together and is able to do this one last time with all eyes on them uh, with pressure on them, you know, Phil, and, and I put this on my Twitter feed when I was going through the documentary and I took a snapshot of it and, and he gave it out on the team uh, handbook that he hands to the players. He put one, two, three, four, five, six in room Roman numerals and put the last dance. And then parentheses, he only put the dance and he didn't put an exclamation point. He put a question mark. Leaving it open, this might not be the last dance when we all really do. It should have been an exclamation mark. But I think it's interesting. He didn't focus on playing the last dance, in quotation marks, but just putting a dance. And that kind of jives with who Phil is in terms of let's focus, let's not focus on this being the last, let's focus on this dance aspect of it being in the precious presence enjoy um, each day 
and the moments that we'll only experience uh, by being together and focusing on the here and now and not might what be. And that the team was able to do that with all eyes on them, with all the controversy surrounding them, and still accomplish their goal is uh, what I look forward to uh, revisiting and, and reminiscing about and, and seeing the picture. So I think that's going to be a fun experience to see how that uh, comes together. Well, I'm looking forward to talking to you next week after we see uh, episodes three and four and get your thoughts on that. Uh, Clarence Gaines, as always, sir, it's great to visit with you, and I'm looking forward to this because uh, this was a great run for you. It was an incredible run for me, and I think as fans are getting to learn about that team and all the characters that were involved, uh, I'm not sure if we'll see it again. I'm not sure if, if, if the sports is designed for this, and kudos to Adam Silver and the people who thought it was a good idea to follow this team and I understand that now there's a uh, some interest in I think they, they filmed Kobe for the final two years of his career uh, hopefully we'll uh, see this grow and grow and it'll be even more fun down the road okay Mike I got this one thing before we end yeah I think Kobe filmed Kobe by the way <laughs> wouldn't surprise me wouldn't surprise me not, not the league but you asked me for a Jerry Krause moment there, there's so many of them this one came to mind right as we're leaving it involves NBA Summer League. And this kind of shows you that Jerry wanted to be one of the boys, even though he was a, a general manager. And uh, it was after we had drafted the B.J. Armstrong, uh, Safety King, Jeff Sanders, we're in the NBA Summer League at Los Angeles. We're at Inglewood High School where we have to crack. But for some reason, the gym's open, but the gate to get into – the school is locked. So we're all hopping the fence. <laughs> and you know Jerry's about five, six, about Maybe. 240 pounds. And Jerry wants to hop the fence with us. And Stacy King, to this day, will tell you how he had to help Jerry Krause try to get over the fence. I think Jerry split his pants. Split his pants. But that just tells you a little bit about Jerry's psyche. He's not going to be a cool GM and just wait it out and let all the young guys go over. This 50-plus-year-old man who doesn't have an athletic bone in his body is going to try to hop that fence, get the help of his players to get over and be able to be practice. So I think that's a nice way to end this segment and to give you a Jerry Krause Jerry Cross moment that not too many people know about. And a good way to end it for sure. <laughs> Clarence, as always, man, we thank you and uh, look forward to talking to you next week. All right, Mike, come right. join us. Coming up next, I want to introduce you to one of my friends from Ameren, Illinois. He's the vice president of gas operations. He is Eric Kozak. That's right. They're not just an electric company. They're also a gas delivery provider. Yeah, so our number one concern is calling 811 before you dig. 811 is a national number. People will come out and they will mark the lines for you and let you know where your gas service is. So if you're putting in a basketball hoop or you're putting in a bush, call 811. Because if you don't call 811, you might have to call 911. 911. <laughs> and we want to prevent that call. <laughs>